Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Is oral delights show number one hundred? Two hundred. Crime City Central, featuring tales to terror. Four hundred. Protecting Project Paul and the all-new Far Five Hundred. Hello and welcome to, <clears throat> excuse me, the little throg in the throat, Starship Sova Echoes. Today, we're going to go back to the Starship Sova Originals. Yes, myself and Kieran, when we used to chew the fat over some of the great science fiction writers. And, like I say, those shows aren't really available anymore, but that's one of the, the, the reasons why I want to kind of start Echoes, is to sprinkle out a few of these shows in, just to give them a little airing again, dust them down and give them a little airing. And what I notice when I listen to this, you know, I've, I've listened to... I got a bit clever with myself and I put this back in the music underneath it and oh dear, so apologies for that because there's this drone going on in, in the background. But this is the one which was number 15 in those original shows and this is Harlan Ellison and I thought it'd be nice, you know, we've just celebrated 500 and we had Harlan's story, A Tiny Man and it's nice to you know, just dip back into and just find out again. Honestly, it's like it, it's really nice to kind of listen to, you know, what we talked about because I'm still proud of them shows. Yeah, the quality sometimes a bit flaky and that, but the content, you know what I mean? What we kind of found out, and especially what Kieran found out, you know, was just fascinating. And it was it was like, you know, when, when I sat down with Kieran, and some of the, the writers I hadn't heard of at that time, you know, and it was it was almost like a learning curve for me as well to just discover new writers. And I think, you know, myself and along with all the listeners, it was when Kieran started, you know, because Kieran had been, if... If you got into these shows and listened to them, you realise Kieran had been reading for, you know, since he was like a tot, where I didn't pick up fiction until, you know what I mean, until the the, the badness fell out of us, you know, when I was a kid, because just playing out and lighting fires and, you know, swimming in lakes and all that nonsense, you know what I mean? But it wasn't until possibly 21, when you know, somewhere around there, when, when I picked up a a novel and you know I'll rehash it I was you know staying at an old girlfriend's house and I was babysitting the house and the dog and they all went away and there was one I think it was it was one of the the CF Lewis stories the horse and his boy is is that is that a, a title for one and with you know it's bizarre kind of just clicked and I think it didn't last you know I read it in a day almost you know what I mean possibly a day do you know what I mean and that was it then I was into everything you know what I mean and again, I'd, I'd jumped in the lake with, with Kieran if, if, you know like plunged in and oh god I just loved it you know what I mean loved the, the kind of discovering and when we used to sit down and talk like that it was genuine I was genuinely excited you know because 
Kieran would do, you know what I mean, I'm kind of there batting ball with the show, but Kieran would do a lot of kind of in-depth research, you know what I mean? Because he knew kind of snippets and then he would go looking for ideas and thoughts and that. And like I say, I still stand by these shows, you know what I mean? There's some great ones in there and we'll discover them in these echoes as well throughout the time playing them. But this one, like I say, is Hal Nelson. And I'm not exactly, you know, it must have been some, you know, some 2007, sometime around there, 2006. Sometime, it might have been, was it 2006 then? I've really got no, if anyone knows, you know, I've got no guidance to tell us when these shows came out. Because <laughs> I've took them off, so I don't know if, if there is some sort of archive site there that kind of keeps things going and that. But if there is, let us know, because it be... <laughs> He's so bloody handy because some of them I'm just kind of guessing away there. So anyway, I'll I'll bring in a young Mr. Kieran O'Carroll and a young Mr. Tony C. Smith and talk about Harlan Ellison. Well, once again, I am Tony Smith. And I am Kieran O'Carroll. Last week we did Tony. We did L. Ron Hubbard. Well, actually, was it not Morrison Barry did L. Ron Hubbard last? I don't know. <laughs> we were actually on a, a week's vacation there, but uh, someone else stepped in and kindly did L. Ron Hubbard. So actually, no, no, no writs have been issued in the aftermath of that show there. So obviously we're <laughs> safe so far. Well, I think everything we said was true. What more? What more do you want? Oh, it doesn't seem to stop people, that's for sure. Uh, we've got fantastic new intro by Jonathan Turner. Yes, Jonathan, thank you very much. I was all played last week, but I couldn't get a chance to actually thank Jonathan. So, Jonathan, thank you. We've got an intro and the new one, the outro as well. So, anybody listen out there? What a polished article we're becoming. <laughs> anybody wants to send a one in, please send intro, outro. That'll be fantastic. Oh, yes, and photographs, Tony. Any kind of contribution and... Um, photographs, views, emails, send them in. On to Harlan Ellison. First of all, I would just like to thank Cliff. Cliff, thank you very much. If you remember last week, we read out your email. Kieran's going to read out, actually, Cliff's review of the Harlan Ellison book. This is Cliff's review. A lot can be learned from Ellison, as he treats the page like a sculpture. Visually manipulating the words on the page with such artistic flair, it is beautiful to behold. Obviously, he uses this trick rarely, but to indicate a character changing his viewpoint by making a pause mid-word and carrying the word and the sentence on lower down on the other side of the page to visually display a character's change of mind in such a way that it is transferred across to the reader seamlessly and using techniques beyond words. Well, I've never seen another writer do such a trick. Ellison is the writer's writer. His short stories are often full of such overflowing power and passion that I have to let my emotions subside in me. I get to savor the wave of emotion and thought, the presence left after. The story has finished before I start the next one. His stories are about life, people haunted by ghosts of the past, or by what they are but stories with a gut-wrenching presence, not a literary dryness. His essays are slices of life which make you realize there is so much wrong in many of the things we take for granted as you learn another deeper way of looking at life. Upon reading the anthology, I immediately became a fan. He is full of passion, of truth unbending. You may not agree with everything he says, but you have to admire the gusto with which he says it. It is frustrating that most people in this country have never heard of him, yet he has won more awards than any other living writer. I can only hope that one day, do one day chance upon another writer of such calibre. Well, Cliff, that's very impassioned, and uh, it gives you an idea of perhaps the depth of feeling that Harlan Ellison 
can inspire. But it's not always positive, is it, Tony? No, he's left his trail of negative feelings through people as well. He's, he's certainly a character that's like, I think this actual show, there will be a few slight swear words in it because I think you can't really say anything about Harl Nelson without, you know, he is just a colourful character and he'll tell you straight to your face, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, I've read somewhere where if he doesn't like anybody, he'll certainly mention that he doesn't like them and he'll, he'll tell them to their face and you just have to listen to some of his quotes and he certainly does, but actually... If he likes someone, he doesn't often mention it. He can't be bothered. He says he can't. He doesn't can stand that all that kind of prettiness, all this hype. He sees himself as a very ethical person, not particularly moral, but definitely ethical. Yes, I was talking to my wife about this there because I was trying to like define like the morality. What she he says, he's certainly not, but his ethics, he certainly is. And did you know this guy actually marched with Martin Luther King on that Montgomery march in the in the sixties as well? So I listened to an interview where he actually explained that he actually spoke to Martin Luther King right throughout his life. He said his standards and he isn't going to bend no matter what and there's some like quotes we'll get on to later in the show where you just like you have to smile at the guy he has set his standard and he's going to budge for nobody and it starts from a very early age he was born Harlan J. Ellison 1934 May the 27th and he was raised in Cleveland, Ohio not New York so there's another one not from New York he ran away from home. By the time he was 18, he had done a wealth of jobs. He was a tuna fisherman off the coast of Galveston, crop picker down in New Orleans, hired gun for a wealthy neurotic. He actually drove a dynamite truck in North Carolina. He was a short order cook, a cab driver, a lithographer, a book salesman, a floor walker for a department store, door-to-door brush salesman. So before anything, he did all that. But he was another one of these precocious children, incredibly intelligent there's a little story there he was telling on this interview it was on the comics network and he explained that he went to elementary school in his first day at school he managed to get kicked out of school which sounds like his character was very much (laughs) cast in cast in stone already he went in there and there was all these other kids all sitting around they were going to do a bit of finger painting perhaps they were going to have a look at this or that or it was going to be sticking bits of uh, crepe paper to paper and and he had been looking forward to going into school because he saw it as this big temple of knowledge and he went wandering off by himself there, leaving the other kids to the teacher's devices looking for a book and he found a book and he picked up the book and he started reading the book and the teacher came over and took the book off him after a struggle and I, I, I think he hit her <laughs> I think he hit her anyway he gets his mom had literally dropped him off She'd walked across the road to her house, literally got just inside the house there, and she got a phone call to go back to the school and uh, to take Harlan away. She said, I've literally been away five minutes. What kind of trouble could he have possibly got into? And she got taken to the principal's office, and the story unfolded. And his mum said, why did you take the book off him? She said, because he can't possibly read. So his mother grabbed the nearest book off the principal's desk, opened it up at random there, pushed it in front of the young Harlan, the four-year-old Harlan, and uh, Harlan read from the book, you know, whatever it was, B is for botany, and then went through the line. And that, you know, obviously then he got an, I think they, I don't know if he got an apology, but he certainly got let back into primary school, which is quite handy for him. Well, that's that one, Trace, that has followed him through, through his life. There's another story when... Ellison was asked to leave, actually asked to leave the state university. And according to Ellison, a professor had told him he would never become a writer and all lovers of real literature would really ignore his pitiful efforts at scribbling. This is it. Ellison told him he could go f*** 
And Ellison later said that for the next 40 something years he sent the man every article, every story, every book he turned out. There we go, rubbing salt in his wounds. <laughs> I think, didn't Joe Haldeman do something fairly similar? Where he got told by um, some visiting professor that he would never, he would never ever sell a book though, and his meager talent should be employed in another direction. So the first thing he did was, um, this is obviously just before the Forever Wars. First, first thing he did was send him a copy of the Forever War and the afterwards and the press that went with it. I don't know if you maybe told him to go up yourself, but <laughs> I think Joe Haldeman got the satisfaction just like Harlan did there by rubbing this guy's nose in it. I think the story of his writing really starts in 1955 when uh, young Harlan Ellison moves to New York City and he finds himself in, uh, with a room in a New York apartment block uh, with other luminaries. And in there he's got Bob Silverberg. Yes, Bob. St- Starship Sofa gets personal. We've actually familiar, de- we've familiar. Actually, yes, familiar. we've actually decided now because we're, we're quite regular now. So from now on, it's it's Bob Bob Silverberg, Phil. <laughs> we're kind of we know these authors in heart and Joe and you know. We need to have an Al in there as well, yes, so we can so call somebody Al. It's not Mister Mister Haldeman no more, Mister Silverberg. It's Bob. Of course, when you research somebody's life in depth, there you <laughs> certainly feel a certain degree of affinity with your with your subject material. So you've got a situation where. Hal Ellison and um, Bob Silverberg and, uh, and Randy. <laughs> Randall <laughs> Garrett, yes. Randy Garrett are all <laughs> living in this apartment block uh, in New York City. And this is the start of... Alan Ellison has set himself the task of becoming a writer. He's done all this... He's, he, when asked in later years, why did you, you know, do all these various jobs... He said, I always understood that if you were to be a writer of any kind of pedigree, you would have to have lived a life. He said, when I was a young man, any writer who was anything had a bio that read like Jack London, who had obviously been a gold miner, and read like Hemingway, who'd gone off and hunted big game. He said, you had to have some kind of credibility as a man who's lived his life to actually be a person who could be taken seriously as an author. I suppose them two years, this is where he, like you see, he honed his craft. He comes into it that, although he, he kind of hits like the science fiction genre sometimes, he claims and categorically claims he is not a science fiction writer and never has been. He's not a genre writer. Well, when he was doing that big kind of rush in the, when he hit New York there, when he, obviously his first, his first story published was in fact a, a, a story called Glowworm, which I think was a sci-fi story. Uh, it turned up in Infinity. But he also wrote for the fanzines, he also wrote for the kind of sex and crime and the other styles of pulps that were prevalent at the time there. Uh, And he did do sci-fi, and like all the guys at the time there, these were, it was a way of making a living as a writer. So you had a slew of pseudonyms, like Nara, he's had Nalra Nostil, Slay Harlson. Uh, Ellis Hart, Jay Solo, Cordwainer, Bird. And that's the one he kind of he sticks to later on in life, which is pretty close to his heart. He kind of says he's writing more. He, he says he's, he's certainly not a science fiction writer. He, he might use like the tools and the mechanics and the furniture sometimes of science fiction, but he, he kind of classes himself more like a poor or a... Yeah, a fabulist. This is the style of writing that goes back to Jonathan Swift, where you basically... Uh, invent an implausible world in which you put your characters in where perhaps 
um, the logic of our world is turned upside down on its head, or certainly the laws that apply in our world uh, do not apply there. We're talking, you know, like we're trying to get the, this character. And Kieran said he, he kind of he wanted to have a feel of like the life itself to become a writer. And actually, in '57, he decided to write about gangs in New York. So this is he actually joins like this in the Brooklyn area, goes undercover as like Cheech Bedlow, I think it is. And this is where he actually he's, he's entered a gang just to learn learn about them, so he can write stories about them. Yeah, the gang was the Barons, and he ended up uh, writing his first non-fiction book, which was Rumble, which is also, I think, being titled as The Web of the City, and that was published in 1958. He was 24 at the at the at the time there, and he was posing as a 15-year-old boy. <laughs> Well, actually, he probably could get away with it, you know. Well, he's a big lad. Uh, according to a story he tells, I've heard he's five foot two, but uh, Isaac Asimov maintains that Harlan Ellison maintains that he's five foot four. And two inches do make a big difference for a little guy. Have you heard that other story about when he's at a party? And apparently this is down in urban legend, but it's Asimov again tells it where he's, he's at a party. And Ellison's a bit of a kind of a wild card anyways. And he goes up to this like tall, leggy blonde, and he says, what would you say to a little f***? <laughs> <laughs> and apparently this, this blonde turns around and says, hello, little f***. <laughs> and it's uh, Asimov that tells his story and says, I don't mind telling it because I know he's probably the only person I could actually get away with telling that story about Ellison. Uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a great little little article um, on the... the, the it's, a, it's basically a statement by Isaac Asimov about Harlan Ellison. And he describes Harlan Ellison as the most colourful character I ever met. I used to see him at um, uh, science fiction conventions in the 50s. Uh, Harlan Ellison was barely out of his teens at the time there. And he, he just says, he may say that he's five foot four in height, but in terms of, in terms of ability, energy and courage, he's eight foot tall. From 1957 to 59, this is when Ellison was actually drafted in the army, and I've not really got much on. Have you got, we haven't. What it's happened a, in the no, army? No, I've never actually. I, I've, I've come across that for 70, 57 to 79, he was drafted, and I don't really think much it, it's, it's ever been mentioned ever since then. Certainly, um, not like uh, last year's topic there. He certainly didn't become a war hero during that particular particular no, period. No. But that would be in the Korean War if he was involved in any kind of conflict. Well, certainly, uh, I've never come across anything. But it was just after that he became, um, he went as a book editor to Hamling's Regency Books. And this is where he published novels and anthologies by Robert Block and Philip Jose Farmer. Mm -hmm. They were obviously major writers of the Pulp Era. Actually, we should do uh, Philip Jose Farmer one of these yes, days. Yes, I think he's another, another one there. And this is what, like, Kieran's saying, um, he's... He went on there in the late 50s to do his soft porn stories and he had titles like God Bless Ugly Virgin and The Tramp. Uh, well, everybody did it. I mean, Robert Silverberg, who was living in that same apartment block with him, he says about Harlan Ellison in, a, in a, uh, an article in Fantastic uh, Science Fiction in July 1977, Harlan Ellison was insecure, physically fearless, extraordinarily ambitious, hyperkinetic, and dominated any room he was in. And much could be said of his work. In 1962, Harlan Ellison moved over from New York to conquer new territory. 
and he found himself in Los Angeles. Well, this is where he goes California and he starts to sell scripts to television shows and this is where he kind of, he's really starting to hit things big. He, he writes shows, he writes scripts for Route 66, Outer Limits. He writes scripts for that and Star Trek. Yes, and The Men from Uncle and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and uh, The Flying Nun. <laughs> Flying nun there. He scribbled in 68. Hollison, uh, Hall Nelson repeatedly said he only wrote that script so he could date with Sally, uh, Sally Field. I can believe it. I can believe it. Somebody else, it, it seems that Holland hit Los Angeles. He had about a year uh, where he seemed to be struggling. And then from 63 onwards, he hit his stride. But there, it does seem to be a very, very strong start and perhaps a weaker finish. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something we can come to later on there. Well, it was actually Ellison Lee's scripts as well, and this is like quite a good bit of trivia as well. Ellison wrote a script for The Outer Limits, Demon with a Glass Hand, and Kieran, you mentioned that a few shows ago, Demon well, it, with a Glass Hand. It won a Writers Guild of America uh, award for the outstanding script. Now, this is one of four awards that he won. Nobody else has won four awards from the Writers Guild of America. The Demon with a Glass Hand was one of the stories, and I think another one was Soldier, that he successfully sued in the 80s, James Cameron, um, for the Terminator series. And actually, if you read um, the whole story, he ended up getting the name on on the credits of the film now, it says... In acknowledgement of the works of Harlan Ellison. So they stole his works. And it was just, what's what's good as well is, you can tell, like, this man, Ellison, this demon with a glass hand, obviously he recognised it was his own show, and he just did not let up. And eventually he got it where he got the money, and he got his name on the credits. You just actually, pure and simple, you don't mess with Harlan Ellison. He will, he will win in the end. Like I say, he'll not give up. And there's a story going around which is actually fascinating, and... If you just listen to it or, or, or read read the, the words, you just realise what a character was. Throughout his life, he says he doesn't want any ads in his book, especially, or he doesn't want ads which hit on cigarettes and alcohol. And apparently new American Library signet books, fine with that. And all of a sudden they ran this advert that had cigarette adverts in it. So Ellison phoned up um, American New English Library and said, pull the book, simple as that, pull the book. Get your manager and director, take all the books home and rip out the pages, or if not, just take the book off the shelves. So he said he wrote them a nice letter saying, take, you know, take it out. He got no reply. This is when he kind of, this is Ellison, couldn't beat them the proper way, so he decided to go his way. He sent them a stone, he posted the managing director a stone, and <laughs> he says he wrapped it up in brown paper bag and all like that, sent it off. And then for the next 230 days, send another stone to the guy's house. And he says he still got no reply, so he says, I'll wait a little bit longer. Then he says he had a friend who was, I think, was a Polish hitman or like a Polish gangster. He says, can you give the actual managing director, the COE, a little fright? And apparently this guy was walking, walking through the streets of New York or somewhere. All of a sudden, this hitman says... If you come home one day and you find your children's foreheads stapled to the door, you should have realised you should have took that advert out of Harlan Ellison's book. And then in the end, there's still no reply from this this guy. He just refused to take out the advert. So in the end, Harlan Ellison shot a gopher and posted it to the, the, the managing director. But he says he posted it. He posted this, um, this dead gopher in a box, but he posted it the slowest post he could get. And then... <laughs> It took months to get there, shot it in the head. And by the time this guy got this dead gopher, it was rotten and stinging. 
Eventually, Hall Nelson won his case and the advert was removed. Not before this managing director had a hard triple hard bypass. Well, there's another really good one. This is from his Los Angeles particular time. He, I, I don't know how it actually happened, but he was living in a treehouse. Some guy in Los Angeles uh, in the Hollywood Hills had built himself a treehouse. And to get to this particular treehouse that Harlan Ellison was living in, he had to go up a kind of dirt road. Anyway, Harlan's met some uh, beautiful but dim woman. Um, and she shacked up with him. And he says, you know, we connected, but it was nothing really, really great. Anyway... Uh, up up the dirt path leading to the treehouse where Harlan and his woman are, uh, are ensconced comes this big, big, big stretch limo. And it's a completely ridiculous car to go up a, a dirt track there. But they do it. These guys kind of drive all the way up there. And this girl says, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's him. Turns out that this girl has just run away from the son of one of Detroit's major, major crime figures. And they've come back for this girl. So Harlan Ellison goes out into, into, the, into the front of his house, his tree house, wrapped only in a towel with a hunting pistol, a Remington hunting pistol rifle. I don't know what they are, a pistol, a Remington pistol rifle. Anyway, this guy comes up and says, Hi, oh, we want to take the girl back. And uh, that sounded more Australian than like a... <laughs> like a I'm not do the voice, I think. It, there's this kind of... This uh, guy sends his two thugs out of the car. They go up there and explain to Harlan Ellison that he's going to hand over the girl. And Harlan Ellison says, you know, if you want me to shoot you, yeah, yeah, we, we can do that. And these guys it, it, they are basically going to advance. There. Harlan's going to shoot, and they're going to advance there. And then Harlan basically calls out to the main man and says, look, this girl, she's a beautiful girl, but she's not so bright. She's, she's left, you know, she's left you, and she's been away for two weeks. But I reckon in another week's time or so, she'll want to go back. So why get ourselves into a situation here where I'm going to shoot somebody, somebody's going to die, and it's all over this girl? Well, why doesn't your, your, your son just wait? It'll all work itself out, and all of us can walk away from this particular situation. Anyway, the, 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 the mobster Don says, you know, you're, you're, not that, um, you're not that daft a guy for a small fella. And they agree that this is the way they're going to play it. And Harlan Ellison goes back into the house with his towel on. And uh, the mobsters get back into the limo. And then they reverse down, down, down the hill. But unfortunately, it, it was the, entirely the wrong vehicle. And they overshoot. And they go into the dirt bank of the actual road itself there. And they get themselves stuck. So one of the mobsters has to come back up to the house, knock on the door, and ask politely if he can use Harlan Ellison's phone to call a tow truck to actually get the car out. And apparently it took them four hours to tow the stretch limo off, off, the, off the dirt edge of the, the, the dirt bank off the side of the road there before they could get themselves um, back down there. The truth of Harlan Ellison's life there is, is, is sometimes more interesting than the fiction. Well, actually, he puts it down to, he says... Um He's a snake on a rock. That's how he kind of describes himself, personality. He's a snake on a rock. And if uh, if you just leave us alone, he'll not bother you. But he says if you go up and mess with him, he'll f*** for the rest of his life. There seems to be a vast volume of work that Harlan Allison has written there about the debacles, things that have gone wrong. The stream of uh, abuse that you'll get from Harlan Ellison if you cross him or you actually annoy him um, has put a lot of people off from, from working with him. Is his running with Gene Roddenberry which seems to have ran on for decades. And this was 1967 
when Harlan Ellison wrote, was commissioned by Gene Roddenberry to write a script for which became the episode Star Trek Ever, The City on the Edge of Forever. And actually, what Kieran mentioned about this, like this, like little riff that uh, Hall and Allison had, and Gene Roddenberry, it's like there's a ten thousand word essay on that thing. So, if anybody wants to go and have a look for that, that's you know, obviously this, this little rift went on. Kieran was actually seen for years. Well, 1967, what was actually happening in 1967? Just to set the scene there for 1967, we have Charlie Chaplin opens his last film, A Countess from Hong Kong. That was in January. In the 12th of January, we have James Bedford. Dr. James Bedford becomes the first person to be cryonically preserved in 10 for Future Resurrection. Well done there. Joins the ranks of Walt Disney. I believe Walt Disney's head. Head. Oh, these corpsicles. Another little story about Hall Nelson. He was actually hired by Disney in, um, to, do, to do some work as a writer for Disney Studios. And he was actually fired on his first day there because he, he suggested that uh, Julian... That went for lunch. He went off for lunch with a whole load of writers, sits down at the table and starts graphically describing how <laughs> he could do a, a Disney porn flick. <laughs> Getting Mickey Mouse to do all these... So he goes through it all with all the voices for all the various characters there. And uh, obviously has everyone in, 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 uh, with, with their side splitting there. Unfortunately, on the other table there is... Mr. Disney. Yes, uh, Roy O. Disney and uh, a few other studio executives are all sitting around there. So Holland goes back to his desk, finds his pink slip, um, also goes out there, finds his parking space, has had his name whitened off, and he's away. <laughs> Literally one day there with Disney and he's done. But you can just see that one there. It'll be Disney's too big uh, not to be toppled for as far as Harlan goes there because he's a giant killer. We also have Louis Leakey announces first pre-human fossil in Kenya. I'm not actually named that because it's a big, long name there and I don't know what that means. We have, in January the 27th, Apollo 1 US astronauts Gus Grissom, Edward White and Roger Caffey are killed in the fire-ups in the Apollo spacecraft. The USA, Soviet Union, UK signed the Outer Space Treaty. We also have like serious bushfires in southern Tasmania, claimed 62 lives in this year. Jimmy Hoffa begins his eight-year sentence for attempted bribery of a jury. And Joseph Stalin's daughter, Big Joe's daughter, she defects to the USA via a US embassy in New Delhi. 13-day TV strike begins in, in the US. Oh, that must have been heavy for you people out there in the US. Ooh. First French nuclear submarine is launched. We have Martin Luther King denounces Vietnam War during a religious service in New York City. And you have 10,000s march against the Vietnam War in San Francisco. That's in April that year. And Elvis Presley and Priscilla are married in Las Vegas. And Yuri Andropov becomes head of the KGB. And Kieran, here you go. Folk rock band Fairport Convention play their first gig in that year, 67. Sandy Denny. City on the Edge of Forever. Roddenberry hires Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison writes a script. Uh, Gene Roddenberry doesn't like his script. Harlan Ellison and Gene Roddenberry fight it out. And we end up with, effectively, Harlan Ellison wants to have Cordway and her bird slapped onto the, um, the credits instead of his own particular name there. Cordway and her bird is a pseudonym that he started using in 57. It's a bit of a major piece because he won 
a Hugo for the actual, for best dramatic presentation and the Writers Guild of America award for the most dramatic episode. So he won two major awards for this. And the effective storyline is this, the one that actually became the Star Trek episode. Kirk uh, falls in love with this uh, peace activist played by Joan Collins. Um, she, uh, if she, they basically by Spock finds that by checking out the timeline that what had, what had actually gone wrong was that she was saved from death but she must die. If she doesn't die, then America will not go into the war in a timely fashion, and the Nazis will win. Roddenberry claims that Ellison wanted to make Scotty sell drugs on the Enterprise. Well, actually, in, the, in, the, in both the original treatment and the later treatment, there's very little to do with Scotty in the actual episode. Gene Roddenberry went to many, many, many science, uh, Star Trek conventions saying that Harlan Ellison wanted to turn his, uh, his Scotty into a drug, a drug dealer. And Harlan Ellison pulled him so many times about this and got so many apologies from Gene Roddenberry. And Gene Roddenberry would go back to the convention and start wittering about this. Gene Roddenberry said that Harlan Ellison put the entire episode um, $100,000 over budget. In actual fact there, it was $66,000 over budget. But Harlan Ellison did some free rewrites. And I mentioned earlier on that Ellison uh, hates the word like science fiction. He hates, and actually, the word sci-fi. He cannot stand it. He says it's actually a hideous sound. He says it. It sounds like cricket. And Forrest J. Ackerman, who actually coined this term, responded by producing loads of buttons that bear the slogan "I love the sounds of crickets making love." <laughs> He worked on the manual Olympia typewriter and still does to this day. And he has a, a kind of distaste for personal computers and most of the internet, actually. He's done like a, a lot of vocal narration for numerous audiobooks, both of his own writing and others. And he's actually stories for Orson Scott Card, Arthur C. Clarke and Terry Pratchett. During this screenwriting period where he took Hollywood by storm is also the period where he wrote his most accomplished short stories. He wrote, to my mind, two of my favourite Harlan Ellison stories. Now, one is uh, obviously going to be no, no surprise to anybody. Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. Apparently, the similarity between Harlan Ellison's name and the main character, Harlequin, is no accidental similarity. The story is about a future world where being late is, in fact, considered to be not just rude, but, in fact, a capital crime. And the TikTok man is the central controller of this particular police state. As I remember it there, the, the rebel, the Harlequin, actually becomes the TikTok man in the end. And my other favorite is Pretty Maggie Money Eyes, about a gambler and his conversation with a female spirit trapped inside a one-armed bandit. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. Well, I think what's so special about Ellison is he never really wants to kind of do the same thing twice. That's probably why he's not classing himself as a science fiction writer. He always wants to kind of just keep on trying to better himself all the time and try and stay ahead of actually his game. Despite the fact he doesn't want to do the same story again, it doesn't stop him trying to sell it. Oh, no. And it wouldn't stop me trying to sell it as well. Cliff mentioned in last week's email that I read out that he's, you know, it, he wasn't very well known over here in, in the UK. At this moment, he's actually doing like a renaissance in America he's quite you know you can find him on all bookshelves and actually in Russia he's been on the top of the bestsellers list over there as well and he says and this is him kind of coming he tries to fight the system as well apparently in Russia they just came out with books 
that they didn't tell his agent about. Hal Nelson says to his agent, well, I'll tell you, do what you want. And yeah, they came out with a, a massive volume of works and that actual volume of works just did despite these like, kind of cowboy editors, went to the bestsellers list and made his editor in Russia the top man in, in editing terms. And he, he also goes on to say why, why he thinks he's... Because you, you look on our British shelves and he's not there at all, really, Harl Nelson. You, you never see him. You see the odd Ray Bradbury and that kind of stuff, but there's no Harl Nelson. And he, he kind of puts it down to when that, the, his book came out, Shatterday. And with each of the short stories that were in there, Harl Nelson wrote this like, little introduction... And the edit, this British editor said, we need to drop them. They're a bit too personal and they show too much of you as the man Hall Nelson. And Ellison replied, and that, that's a bad reason why? The editor turned around and said, because we're British and we, we don't like that kind of sort of stuff. So I think Ellison had said, bollocks, you can, you can keep them in. And from then on, he's kind of, I guess, not really hit it off with the British markets. Well, certainly Dangerous Visions, which also came out in 1967 under the banner of the new wave. And, and Harlan Ellison, obviously, you know, like a lot of writers, didn't want to be typecast into a form of genre. But Dangerous Visions made a massive impact and certainly ran with the spirit of the age as much as anything that Michael Moorcock and the New World's crowd were doing there. It was a big, 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 big thing. Followed in 1972, Tony, by more Dangerous Visions and then followed not at all yes, in any way, shape or form. 75. <laughs> by, by any Dangerous Visions uh, after he'd sat on everybody's Is this the one where... Joe Halland's story is sitting on yeah. his desk even probably this day now. Joe Haldeman reckons that he would have invented cyberpunk. But apparently I heard that um, it just it would take an enormous amount for him to put this together and he just, even then, back then, he just didn't have the time or the kind of the energy to do it. So, But it's still there and, and whether it gets released or not is it's up to Ellison, I suppose. Well, I think he's now more known for... Um, it, it's it's him again, Ellison the man, and like apparently in, in, the, in the early 80s he assaulted the author Charles Platt in the cricket and he and this was at the Summer Nebula Awards the two of them agreed not to discuss it then and Alan then went ahead and discussed <laughs> it told everybody about how he got on and also he was interviewed for this uh, Starlog, ma- Starlog magazine 100th edition and they were actually spotlighting the 100 most important people in science fiction and Ellison went on record actually when he was getting interviewed that I thought the film Back to the Future was a piece of shit <laughs> and that's when this magazine had never had so much negative fan mail back. Ever. Well, you just run against popular conception there. From about 71 onwards there, Harlan Allison found himself writing comics. He was very much involved in the comic scene. So he was writing episodes for the Avengers and most famously um, writing episodes for Daredevil. And he's pretty much his Daredevil comics are considered at that particular time to be um, defining works for the actual character himself. In comics, it seems that Harlan Ellison has found some lasting and building fame, and he's even been writing bits and bobs. There was uh, I have I have I have no mouth, and I therefore can't scream. That was made into a computer game. He provides the voiceover in the computer game of the god. Mad God uh-huh. Am.
there's definitely two sides to the guy you know what I mean there's two incidents where you kind of find out just really what he's like and he says he's throughout his life he's upset people by his standards he's upset them big but he says if you ask his friends they don't actually think that was a big upset but there's one incident that really sticks in his mind is when he was asked to um, write a book for an editor friend of his called Pam Pie and she worked for the Long Meadow Press and it was actually a publishing arm of uh, Walden Books and he says she was like a dear friend of his and it was always just a little startup company but they offered him money for this book not a great deal of money not a great deal of money but it kind of enough to kind of probably I guess keep him happy and go ahead but he says the next day didn't he get an even better offer from this other company and even this Pam says you've got to take that offer it's going to be you know what you need and he just it tore him up that even like the, this editor friend said go ahead and take that other offer but it just tore him up all the time but here in the end he took it up and consequently this um, Long Meadow Press they went out of business you know so he's got they're the kind of things that hit a true nerve for Harlan Nelson and really cause him upset Isaac Asimov said that you know the guy has a, a knack almost a perverse pleasure or takes a perverse pleasure in presenting the most unsympathetic side of his personality to people he doesn't know. But once you get past that particular side of his personality, you realize that he's a warm and loving and caring uh, human being who would do anything for you if he thought it would actually help. And actually, for three years, and this is where you get to find out about Ellison's, you know, another side of him, fought to get the E.A. Van Vogt science fiction writer the, the Grand Master Award. And he says it's been, he'd been passed over for decades and decades on this thing, and... And he went to all the ex-presidents, you know, and he got all their backings, like, right the way up down from, like, Jack Williamson, and he tried always to, like, get this guy, this writer, you know, the Grand Master Award. Well, this is at the stage where A. Van Vock had, had basically got Alzheimer's disease and was fading, fading fast, and this guy hadn't had a... He'd been a real leading light. This guy had not been around there. The genre would not have been the same. Well, he says like this. Um, this guy was like the biggest of the big in the field. You know, bigger than like the, the Arthur C. Clarke's, Henlon and Bradbury and all that. And just every time he was passed up and passed up for this um, this award. And again, the, the Ellison esque guy in him. He mentioned it to them. You know, he waited a couple of days' time or a, you know a few few months. No reply. Then he said, if you don't give this guy his award, he's going to go on TV and just blast the hell out of the uh, science fiction writers of America. Well, he had, a, he had, a, he had actually a series on the um, sci-fi channel. This is part of the latter years when he wasn't... He, be, he certainly f- he found ways and means of getting, getting himself a platform. He also had this um, show on the sci-fi channel. And he got up there and he basically said, you know, this is what they need to do. These guys... These guys need to do this they need to basically give this guy his recognition and uh, he got up there and he and he basically with his soapbox fought his case and his, his actual words he says uh, when he did this because he says before that you know he was being polite to them and everything like that uh, these science fiction writers of America a lot he says they just became very arrogant and high handed and wouldn't do a thing about it and Kim said he finally got on air vented all his feelings and he says they start to squeal like stuck pigs <laughs> it's amazing isn't it and he says um, but he says of course he well just... he didn't do just one he did four more and after he'd done four more A.E. Van Vogt got his award yes and he says he, he got his award and he just had to because he embarrassed them he humiliated them and uh, and he goes on to say that was like a real good thing and it was actually he was on the side of the angels <laughs> That kind of brings you to a later stage there. Harlan Ellison has definitely fought against the establishment all the way along the line there. He did actually, 
he was one of the people who helped set up the Science Fiction Writers of America in the first place. I think that was 65. By the time it gets to the 80s there, um, as he always is, he's fighting against the establishment. But in May 2006, he actually was elected a Grand Master of Science Fiction himself. Himself, yes. And uh, he actually makes a comment there that it felt quite strange after having fought against the establishment for so long to actually get this recognition made him feel a little bit washed up because all of a sudden, you know, he'd always dreamed about getting this award. Maybe he'd go on stage and he'd, and he'd just ex- humbly accept it with a couple of small words there and shock everybody. Or he'd get up there and, and, and deliver a tirade. Or he'd get up there on the stage, uh, collect his award, and then jump into the audience and punch a few people on the nose. <laughs> well, it's like, even to this day now, even now, and you're talking like, say, August the, the 26th this year, you know, 2006, uh, during the 64th World Science Fiction Convention, he was up on stage, and Elson grabbed Connie Willis's breast when on stage, giving out the Hugo Awards. Well, that's it. She, she said, um, get the a guy's hold of, an old man. Get a hold of yourself, Harlan, and instead he gets a hold of her. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy's still now, and I mean, you know, bless him, he's getting on. He's still at the height of the like, controversy all the way through this science fiction field. I don't think there's been anybody actually like Harlan Nelson. I think Harlan Nelson, if he really felt something about something, he'd do something about it. The man had a great deal of integrity, and he says it himself there, you know. He's done some bad things, and he's done some good things. You just need to listen to Cliff's review at the start of the show there to see how obviously um, the the magic that uh, Hal Nelson can put on page because he is a great writer he is a very good writer possibly one of the greatest writers of his generation he's certainly won more awards than any other uh, writer of his generation there certainly across the board there Mm -hmm. as a writer some genre writers have won more in their particular genre but across the board he's done far far more when things go wrong He's written about those as well. It seems that his career has gone from that vast output of of hack work to then doing those award-winning screenplays to then basically losing his way to a certain degree there and then writing more so than writing fiction work, but actually writing about all the various things that are going wrong. Well, I think he's 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 actually very very popular on the um, like the talk circuit scene. Got CDs out on you know his actual lectures. He's given the talks and everything like that. He had a he had a he had a, a column in the Los Angeles Times, mm-hmm. and he won he won an award again. You know he won he won a, a the Writers Guild of America award for his column. He'd only been doing his column for sixteen weeks, and he blew the New York Times and everybody else. The Chicago Tribune got it under my newspaper. I'll tell you what's actually really funny, and this is just like an offside note. Here. This uh, David Garold in 1980, he wrote a Star Trek novel called The Galactic Whirlpool, and it makes mention of the Ellison Star, a particularly unpredictable and angry white dwarf star. <laughs> he is a man who will stand there in his soapbox and he will vigorously demand, defend what he believes in, and he won't back down. That's, that's, I think that's exactly, he'll just not back down. And if it means sending 230 stones to the like head of a, head of a company or sending a dead gopher, this guy will win in the end. And that's actually a really nice thing to, to talk about. He's been a radio talk um, show host as well. He took over from um, Mike Holden when he died there on the radio show Hour 25. Yes, yes. I mean, we don't get any of that over there, but you just you kind of hear these stories on the web and through, through other people, you know what I mean? So Whether or not you like him or not is beside the point there. He has... Uh, been writing for over 50 years now 
and he has published 73 books. He's won, apparently, he won he, the most decorated author ever until J.K. Rowling came along, <laughs> <laughs> which seems rather sad. Um, he, listen, he's done an awful lot. Actually, listen to that uh, L. Ron Hubbard show. I said, uh, I think, Rowling, J.K. Rowling last week's show. Oh, hey, yeah. you want to get even better than that there? I, 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 I did some quick math there, and I managed to add up uh, Joe Alderman. If you take... If you take 1943, yes. <laughs> uh, and and you subtract it from 1952. Well, you'll not get 12. <laughs> yeah, that's why you put. You uh, said he was 12. Oh, I was. I, I vigorously stood. Tony said to me as I was doing that quick math. There, no, get it right. No, get it right. Well, actually, I was telling Kieran as well. I um, I edit this show, and I you, I listened to it. I don't know how many times, and I just never sunk in. <laughs> you got it wrong. <laughs> this is it. Should we go on to some emails, sir? We certainly can do. Right then. Well, this is from Mick. And Mick, I forgot to actually read you last week, so my apologies for that. It's uh, Your email must have just got mixed up there somehow, but... I was about... And Mick goes on to say, I was about to write to you asking what happened to the L. Ron Hubbard vote. Well, it, it passed and it won. There you go. I've been catching up with your shows for a while whilst doing DIY, and I went on the website to vote yes for Big uh, Ron show. We had taken it down, apologies for that, but it was finished. It was distraught. I'd been collared by Dianetics people down Fawcett Street in Sunderland many years ago, and I was interested in finding out a bit more about their me and man's output. Well, actually, like you see, if you listen to last week's show, me and Kieran were collared by them, so I guess that's a, a very popular thing, is to be collared by the Dianetics um, preachers and get it uh, get collared. Luckily, I have just heard that show number 11 and found out that the show will go on. Yes, well, that was a past one. Anyhow... Anyhow, I love your PKD shows and just listen to the Sanna's Lav Lem. I may have to use your link on Amazon to pick it up. Keep up the good work as it's great to hear accents from not America or from London. Having found out about Tony Sunderland roots, my affection for the show has increased. I am a Sunderland fan and my, for my sins. The coverage of non-mainstream science fiction writers is great and there are plenty of podcasts that cover the newer stuff and I have just turned 40 so I feel a bit more on the wavelength. Well, welcome to the 40 Club there, sir. Although I have no idea how old you are. Well, I am Mick. I am 40. Sprightly 40. And Kieran is... 36. The babby of the, the it's team. interesting to point out there that I actually replied pretty much to all these things there in an email earlier on as well. Yes, well, Kieran, like you say, Kieran mentioned what I've Make I'll put your, your uh, letter down somewhere and lost it totally. We've got one from Mark Malcolm. Pretty short one here. You should draw on Harry, Harry Harrison, point number one. Uh, enough about Ronnie Corbett, point number two. And three, keep up the good work, Mark Malcolm. Thank you, sir. Well, it's funny, I'm just getting a new one from Mark, so I might as well read that out while while I'm here. Um, gentlemen, Mark says, this, his title is not so brief this time. Thanks for your invitation to write three pages on... Hubbard. I think your podcast was enough about the old rascal. He seems to have been quite creepy. Exactly. You must admit, though, he certainly did make his mark. He certainly proves that P.T. Barnum said about a sucker was born every minute. Thanks for the material on Stanislav Lem. I am now reading the Futurological Congress at the moment, and I'm impressed at how something written over 30 years ago 
and he goes on to say about Dick, thanks for spending the time on this fellow. I believe he was worth it. I do think you might have talked a little bit more about the material which seems so suited to the adaptations in the movies. My opinion is that when you take a story by Dick and are forced to strip away material to use in the movie, his work is actually improved. If you look at his later work, you are confronted with page of, a page of great writing followed by page of elegant, unintelligible gibberish. Yeah, exactly, sir. There was a made-for-TV movie, I think it was on DVD, called Imposter, starring Madeline Stone and Gary Sinus. I think the message of this particular work might be summarised. You are being lied to, and some of the biggest lies have been, you've been listening to are those you have told yourself. I think this is what people find most appealing in his work and why it makes such good cinema. Suggestions for future shows. Nominate three, inventiveness and versatility. Harry Harrison, Harl Nelson and Keith Lamour. Thanks again for your efforts. Once again, forget Ronnie Corbett, Mark Malcolm. Mark, thank you very much for that email. That's really appreciated. I'll get one from, I've got one from Steve Bickle. Hello, Steve. You all right? Cool. A proper UK podcast about sci-fi. Keep up the good work. I'm catching up with all the back catalogue. Just found the podcast. You can guess how far I've got from this email. Sci-fi women top ten. If you're still collecting names, here's some for the pot. Most important subcategory mentioned first. Authors, and he's got in there. Ursula K. Le Guin and Anne McCaffrey and then he's got for sci-fi babes yes I think this is kind of where our main meat of the matter was this is where we sunk to anyway yes um, Jenny Agada for Logan's Run he's got Jane Fonda in for Barbarella and Jerry Ryan Seven of Nine it's worth pointing out that Harlan Ellison wrote several episodes of the TV series of Logan's Run. Sexiest um, sci-fi voice, Summer Brooks. This is from the Slice of Sci-Fi podcast. Yes, she has got a very nice uh, voice uh, there. And sci-fi characters, maybe Henlon's bloke, but perhaps Friday could be more on the list. Needs more thought, this. Regards, Steve. Well, Steve Kettering from Northampton, thank you very much for your email. We have two emails from Jamie Mellon. Hello, gentlemen. Greetings again from Sydney, Australia. I've been trying to leave a message on the shout box, but after typing my name and message and pressing the send button, nothing happens. Please, sirs, what am I doing wrong? The message was wondering if that one day you could possibly talk about Stephen J. Donaldson of the Thomas Covenant's Chronicle fame. I know these books are not strictly sci-fi. He is currently completing the third trilogy of this epic tale and also written some true sci-fi stories. Just for your consideration... Jamie Mellon. Now, Jamie sent us two emails, one with a picture of Robbie the Robot from, um, is it not Return to the Forbidden Planet? And he's also sent us another one there where he's uh, sent us a picture of the glamorous Dr. Venus of Fireball XL, XL5 fame there. Mm, I had a thing for Gabriella Drake, who was in UFO by Jerry Anderson, so... yes. I know, yes. I follow that. And she looked pretty much like she was made of plastic and that. And the final email is from Paul, Paul S. Jenkins. And if anyone knows out there, Paul is the host of Rev Up Review podcast. And I'm going to play a promo from Paul, so please stay around and listen to that. Paul says, so how about more British sci-fi authors you've mentioned? Uh, we mentioned, actually, Ian M. Banks, which obviously is going to be a possibility in the future. He says that would be interesting and popular, but how about the likes of Brian Aldiss, Bob Shaw, and my all-time favourite, Arthur C. Clarke? Kieran, your thoughts on them? I'd like to do a little bit about Arthur C. Clarke, I must admit. I mean, I think uh, there's a guy who uh, had less hair than Isaac Asimov, by Isaac Asimov's uh, own admission there, but uh, had a certain degree of kudos. Certainly, uh, I think that, that would be something. But I think next week... We are considering doing... Well, we'll just have to wait a little bit later on the show. But he, he is a British writer. But I'll just finish this email from Paul. 
Um, another suggestion is a swipe from the Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas podcast. Um, you could perhaps announce in advance, say a month, who you're covering to give us some time to do research ourselves of particular authors' work or time to read them for the first time. Well, actually, Paul, we actually sit down and do this show and then it's just within, like, we, we each look at each other and kind of say, who next? So there's not really much thought. And ah, Tony, kids, you're not there. There's an awful lot of thought there. <laughs> But we leave it outside the room before we do the show. Yes. So, Paul, thank you very much. And thank you very much for reviewing our um, show on your site, it, your podcast. It was fantastic. And you did a first-class job. So please, everybody, listen to Paul's promo and subscribe. Captain Paula Mackey should have known better. The deal had looked dodgy, and so it turned out. Now, deprived of her ship, her communication cap, and imprisoned on Plitone, the most disreputable dump she had ever known, she must find a way to get back to her ship. But Garda Grunt, Plitone's unscrupulous wheeler-dealer, has other plans for her. Welcome to The Plitone Revisionist, a podcast novel written and read by Paul S. Jenkins. Subscribe to the Plitone Revisionist at paulsjenkins.net or at podiobooks.com. Right, Kieran, who are we going to do next week? I don't actually remember. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me, Tony, who are we going to do next week? Well, it is down to our British science fiction comedy writer, Douglas Adams. I don't think there needs anything to be said about Douglas Adams, so please stick around for next week for sure for him. That'll be, it'll be a great one, to be quite honest. It's, he, brings a, he just brings a smile to your face, you know what I mean? So it'll be nice to do Douglas Adams. Right, I'm going to put Kieran on the spot there. Now, Kieran, it's your turn to tell the web address and the email address. Ah, uh, well, the email address is <laughs> starshipsofer at gmail.com, and the web address there is www.starshipsofer.com. Yes, please. And please, please pass our name on to anybody who knows it. You know, we've got loads of emails saying that you're doing it. It really is nice to know that you're helping out and publicising the show. Thank you very much for that. If you could keep doing it, that would be great. And don't forget, if uh, this is a real bonus as well, if you have a blog and you wouldn't mind mentioning us on your blog and put a link onto your blog to us, that would be great. Please tell us, and we'll do the same to you. We'll we'll have our a link to your blog on our site as well, and that would be just fantastic. It all helps to spread our word around. And also, if anyone's interested, or if you'd be kind enough to do it, why don't you go over and put a little, write a little review on iTunes that all helps us as well so where it says on our page in iTunes write a review that, that just would be excellent it would help us immensely get our name up in the ranks in iTunes and of course you know the show is for those people who are listening there so any advice or tips or hints that you may have there any guidance we're more than happy or contributions to the show we're more than happy to take those on board there uh, it makes it feel a little bit more of a family affair yes I mean honestly if you're just out there and you listen to us on your, on your iPod or you just listen at work and tell us about yourself because it's just nice to know 
where you've always come from, you know what I mean? We've got Jamie down there in Australia, we've got people from Canada. Anyway, I mean, we've, on the Google Analytics, we, you're in Japan, you're in Moscow. You're actually, there's seven listening in Gosforth, Kieran, which in Gosforth is about five miles away from where we're recording now. So, hello everyone in Gosforth. Hey, hi. So, Douglas Adams next week. Hope you'll stick around and listen to that. I think that's round about it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like you just say, it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. So long ago. So <laughs> my youthful glow has slowly ebbed away there. Just kids, Kieran. He used to come over, if anyone's interested, he used to come over. He used to finish working in a restaurant in Newcastle. Had to get the last metro over here. I used to pick him up, the, you know, it must have been about half 11, quarter 12. He used to sleep on the settee in the living room or on the sofa. And we'd get up, have breakfast. And the dogs would be kind of all circling around. And we got on with these shows and we did that. And we did that, I think, for about 60 or 70 shows, if, if the truth was known. Then we kind of actually, that's right, I fell at work and knocked myself out. And it kind of, I was in hospital for a few, I think about five days and then recovering. And it, the shows got a little bit sidetracked. We never got back together doing them shows. And I picked it up and carried on doing it myself. And then I think I asked Amy, Amy stepped in and did a few shows as well. And I like to say, I'd like to say it was, you know what I mean, my kind of idea, you know what I mean? It was my inspiration that kicked off. <laughs> Looking back at genre history, 100 episodes later, Ames. But I'm sure it, I'm sure Amy did what, you know what I mean? Probably sure 100 if I'm, you know, somewhere around there. So we will dip back. That was a big one. We will dip back into these... Starship Sofa's originals, because like I say, there's some great, great content in there, man. There's some funny old times, and there's some great writers, you know what I mean? Oh, the the memories are coming there. Anyway, until next week, look after yourselves. Is Oral Delights, show number 100. I am your... It was a little harsh, 200. Crime City Central, featuring Tales to Terror. 400. Integrity and Protecting Project Home. And the all-new Far Show 500. 500.